So, after that long, festive and fun Christmas break, we are back. You're listening to episode number six of Fascinate Pod, with me, Sam Brown. Just before I get started, I want to say a massive thanks to everybody for listening and downloading, and for all the feedback that I've got so far. You can find me on Twitter, at FascinatePod, where you can get in touch with me, make topic suggestions about things that you want to listen to. Right, so today I have Dr. Flavia Bellum. She is the Chief Scientist at Seneca. If you don't know what Seneca are, they're a social enterprise based in the UK, providing a free resource for kids in education from Key Stage 3 all the way to A-levels. She explains to me how they use the latest research in neuroscience and the smart algorithms that they've developed to tailor revision to each individual student. On top of that, we discuss some of the latest research on how the brain works and learns. We discuss techniques for effective learning and how age affects our ability to learn. Here she is, Dr. Flavia Bellum. So, Dr. Flavia Bellum. Hi. Thank you very much for coming on. No problem. Thank you for coming here. So, yeah, here we are on the banks of the River Thames. Yes. In London, right next to MI6. Yes. In the Seneca head office. Yeah. What goes on in this building? Uh, there are a lot of offices in this building that have a juice company close uh, to us. Yeah. Which is quite cool as well. They give us free juice all the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so um, Seneca, there are only 12 or 13 of us. And what we do is create this platform for schools and we offer it completely free. And the platform's all based on cognitive sciences and what we know about the brain. So it's a homework and revision platform. It covers key stage three, four, and five. So all the secondary education, most subjects, and it's all free and it's all based on evidence. It must be really fun to work in in an environment where you're trying to do something positive, concentrating on how to better improve the, the workings of the mind. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The main aim is to increase social mobility. So this idea that everybody can get to a certain point, regardless of who they are, you know, what kind of parents they have, what kind of schools they go to. Mm. So they can climb up the social ladder. So if you have good resources that everybody has access to, then that's a good way to start. And how is what you're doing at Seneca different to typical revision techniques then? Yeah, so uh, there are some surveys, there have been some research showing that students, the most common techniques are highlighting texts and yeah. then just reading a note over and over again until you basically memorize them or just writing summaries. But those are not the most effective ones. So our research tells us is that the most effective ways to revise are to bring information back to mind. So just keep answering questions and trying to apply that knowledge to something else. Mm. And also space out your revision. So instead of cramming, which again, most students do just the night before the exams, you just plan your revision ahead and you do only a bit of each subject each time. And then you always go back and revisit those topics. Yeah. Yeah. The way that I crammed for exams, I I crammed, (laughs) was I suppose I was learning to pass the exam, not to acquire the knowledge. Uh, So I would maybe leave it a little bit too late and read all my notes and do the revision very last minute like you like you're saying is the the bad way to do it and it got me through I passed you know I I did okay in my exams but I'm thinking maybe that I didn't learn everything so my my recall uh, a year later for example probably wasn't there as much it could have been is that the right way yeah that's exactly it so all these techniques just going crazy over your notes the night before the exam is a good way if you only want to know them for the next day Mm. but if you want to know their contents the next month for the next year or in 10 years then that won't do so yeah it helps if you have this exam the next day it will help but it's not really going to store that information in your long-term memory in a way that you actually understand that and are able to use it for all the things you know you learn yeah is it a learned technique how to learn things yes i'd say so what are the most common things that people do wrong yeah so uh on this research that showed 
they saw that only one in four students used the good techniques. And one of the reasons was they just didn't know about them. Okay. So they were basically doing what they've always done and they were doing what their parents did. They were doing what their teachers did sometimes, which is true. So you used yeah. that. I used that when I was in school. So if I didn't know the right ones, I would just tell my kids and my students to do that because that's what I did and it got me through and it worked. So yeah, they do a lot of highlighting and cramming and just reading. It's more like passive techniques than active techniques okay. that you really have to so there's one thing called desirable difficulties uh, it says that to really learn something you need to put effort into it there has to be some sort of difficulty and effort so you sure. really think about that knowledge and create the connections if you're just highlighting there's no difficulty there you're just playing playing really easy so yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah I suppose you feel a, big, a bigger sense of achievement yes. when you've learnt something that's difficult to grasp. If I think back to when I, I learnt things at school, the simple sums, for example, in maths, you, I don't have any memories of doing that. But doing a, a very large project on sort of the workings of the heart or, um, or discovering the, how the solar system yeah. interacts with each other, that sort of thing, it's... Uh, is there an emotional attachment there? Is that how, how there why you... can be too. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so there are several things that can influence our memory. Like loads and loads of things. Right. But emotion is one of them. Uh, one of them is also elaboration. So the more you think about something and mm. you connect that piece of knowledge to other pieces of knowledge, the more secure that is in your memory. But emotion definitely plays a good part. It's actually the main modulator of memory, I say, is emotion. It's either positive or negative, and it depends on what kind of memory you're talking about, your age group. But it's definitely an important one. So memory and learning, Yeah. how are they interlinked and how are they different? Yeah, so memory uh, is the basis of learning. You need to have that in your memory. We have these two types of memory. We have your working memory. That's where you have your thoughts and where you manipulate and you process information. That's so now that you're listening to me, all my words are in your working memory and you're kind of understanding that and you're thinking about something else. I mean, you're paying attention, but you're also <laughs> connecting it to other things. Yeah. Uh, and then part of that information is going to be stored in your long-term memory. That's our common sense memory when you say I remember my birthday five years ago that's your long-term memory so learning you have to have things on your long-term memory it is about memory but it is about how that memory is stored so there is one researcher in, uh, in the US uh, her name is Ephra First and she has this quote that says something like the difference between knowledge and understanding and learning really so knowledge is just this pieces of information that you store but actually learning and understanding them is the connections that you have mm. between you and know, being able to apply it being able to then it. use there to get something new so i think about it like a jigsaw puzzle you're going to store all the pieces and then you're ready to get another piece and for then then you get larger and larger oh, that's puzzle. fascinating Memory, I suppose the difficulty is turning it from short-term working memory into yeah. your long-term memory. Yeah. What's happening in the brain to convert it? Are they stored in different places? Uh, yeah, so the, there's a lot of debate, I'd say. I don't think people, under, well, definitely they don't understand everything that happens in the brain. But yeah, so working memory and long-term memory, they are separate things. And uh, you need your... I just want to say some words here, the hippocampus and you need your amygdala, all of those to store long-term memory. But you actually have physical connections. So there are some studies, uh, you know, epilepsy patients, sometimes yeah. they go on surgery to remove the area that is causing epilepsy. Then some researchers take the opportunity to do research on the person. So you can have your electrodes connected directly to the person's brain when the person is awake and doing things for you. So I've read some studies saying that you can almost literally see the connections between different pieces. And different what do they find out the from brain. that? Yeah, so basically what they did was if they stimulate a part of your brain, 
then the person has this vision of something that happened in the past. Oh, wow. So you're kind of activating that memory. Does, do they see that like a like a, a dream? No, they say they kind of travel back. Oh, so they, they feel like they're actually yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I wow. mean, that's what they say. <laughs> but yeah, the idea is that I suppose that's memories quite sub- are like physically stored in your brain and you can bring them back if you mm. activate them, if you touch them with your electrode, basic terms. It's quite subjective, I suppose, what they feel like if they have actually travelled back. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting thing. So you yeah. mentioned the hippocampus and the amygdala. Yeah. What roles do they play? Yeah, so the amygdala is mostly on emotions, just uh, in terms of memory. That's where you have the interaction between emotions and memory. And the hippocampus is the main part of the brain that is associated with storing those memories in your brain. Okay, so if you were to remove a part of your hippocampus, for example, you wouldn't be able to remember anything? Uh, Again, there are so my favorite bit of my doctorate study was when I found two papers published on the same year that said exactly the opposite thing. So one of them said the hippocampus is not necessary for long-term memory to store that. And then the other one said it was. So they both had patients that had lesions in the hippocampus. And then they both tested different memory games or like experiments with the patients and one of them found that patient could not recall those memories and then the other one found it could how would they be able to get different results then were they doing different tests there could be different yeah there could be some different methodology or it could be the lesions that were slightly different uh, the types of memory but it's the thing with science you sometimes you get different results and you just have to replicate that yeah until you find out what's really happening I just thought that was so awesome and I had them both write written on my <laughs> dissertation. What was your dissertation about? It was about memory and emotions, but it was uh, on older adults. So I worked with people over 65 years old. Okay. Uh, yeah, and comparing them to younger persons uh, between 18 and 25 years old. I was comparing the performance on memory tasks for different emotional information. So I was giving them different types of information to remember that could have either positive or negative emotional valence, and then comparing how the two groups did on the memory test. Mm. And I also had the EEG recording their brain activity, also to compare brain activity between younger and older people. And what did you find? Yeah, yeah, that's the big question. Why did I find Uh, (laughs) a lot of things? So uh, there is a very famous for the field theory that says that younger people, like our age, we remember negative things better. But then when you get older, like an old age, you remember positive things better. So we were testing that. We did not find that. We found that everybody remembered the positive things at least in my experiment, better than the negative things. That's nice to know. <laughs> yeah, that was good to know. But basically, when you're adding positive emotions to neutral information, so that was the main, I'd say, behavioral finding. We had we give them a lot of words, just random, boring words. And then for some of them, they had to add emotions, positive emotions. So really, say so if I give you the word mug, Sometimes you have to think, ah, that's my favorite mug because my mom gave it to me or something like that. And then those words became more memorable. Mm. And that was the same thing for younger people and older people. So that was nice uh, because in the future it could be some technique that you give to older people to try to help them with their memory problems. Just try always to link what you have to remember to something positive or just come up with a nice story about that 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 can help link it to something positive I like that rather yeah. than just link it to something something positive yeah is a, so that that's what happened so when they were linking it to something neutral it didn't help as much as when they were linking it to something positive that's really interesting that was got. and was there as much of an improvement in the 60 over 65 age group so the older adults did not get as good as the younger adults but the proportion of improvement was basically the same 
I'd say. So all groups improved. Okay. But the younger adults, they were just better in everything, which is, that's what you expect. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I've been thinking a bit about what the reason is that we learn recently. So I, evolutionarily speaking, we needed to learn as humans to, to suit our environment. So once we get to a certain stage in our life, uh, when we understand our environment, we wouldn't necessarily need to learn much anymore. So we'd be able to put that effort and the energy into living and maybe passing on the knowledge that you have already acquired. What do you think to that? That's actually almost what the research that I told you about says, the one that says that we remember negative events better in the beginning and then positive. That's basically what they said. So you're very had a good thought. So what they say is that when you are younger, you have to know how to survive. Right. So basically, if you think back to like animals or the primates, the, the classic example is um, if you're a monkey walking around the jungle and then you see a tree full of apples, bananas, and then you see a place full of snakes that could eat you, it's more important for you to remember where the snakes were so you don't go there again mm. than where the tree with food were. Right? Yeah, sure. So, you can eat. You have to eat food, but if you get caught by a snake, then, then you've died that. once. Yes. That's it. So, but then when you get older, because you've done everything you had to do, that's what that theory says. Because you've done everything you had to do, you have survived long enough. You have reproduced, as animals do. Uh, so then you don't have to worry about that anymore, and you're really just focusing on the positive mm. side of things and uh, passing your information on and trying to get fulfillment instead of survival. That's, the, yeah. that's what they say. So do you think then it's inbuilt in us to stop learning at a certain stage in our life? Yeah, so that's what the theory that theory says. But like I say, I didn't, you didn't really find that. find that. And I know other people that also have never been able to replicate that. So I wouldn't say that's the truth. At least we don't know yet. Uh, but what happens also is that when you get older, your brain just doesn't work as well. So even if you want to learn something, you may just not be able to because mm. it's just like every other organ in your body. It just doesn't work as well when you're 70 when you are compared to when you are 30. Yeah. Um, although if you, for example, if you work out all of your life, your body will look and function much better when yes. you're 70 than if you didn't work out for your whole yes. life. Is it the same with learning in your brain? If you if you actively learn all of your life, do you retain the ability to learn more information? Yes. So uh, when I was working with these older people, they all asked me, so if I start doing crosswords now, <laughs> can I get my memory back? You know, things like that. If I play those brain games, can I get my memory back? But the research that I've read at least says that it's not that easy. So what happens is that everybody's going to get this decline with age. But if you start, if you do a lot at the beginning during your whole life, then you start from a higher point. So then even though you have your decline, you finish also on a better position. See what I mean? So the same yeah. thing with the muscles. Mm. So everybody's going to have muscle loss with yeah. age. But if you're working out your whole life, then your line moves up. And then even though you have that decline, you still finish better than other people. So it is the same with your brain. If you're very active, if you are learning things all the time, then you can move your line up on the graph and finish off better than other people that have not done that. It does make sense. I, I feel yeah. like that sort of fits the way that I look at the world. Yeah. So memories are quite, are quite notoriously inaccurate. I think anyone who thinks back to what they thought an area looked like when they were a child and then revisited it uh, 20 years later or so, they'll realise that it's actually very different. So, for my example, I remember running down the corridor in my school and thinking that it was miles and miles long. And then going there when I was, I think, maybe 17 or 18, it was actually, you know, 10 metres long. So your memories, I feel, are quite skewed. Maybe because it's a long time since you were there or you were a different person when you were there. Is that necessarily a bad thing or is there any way that we can stop our memories distorting so much? Uh, I 
it's not a bad thing. I think it's just something that happens. That may be a bad thing if you're thinking about schools. So if a student remembers a content, it's like A equals B when the right answer is A equals C, then that may be a problem because they get the wrong answer. So you don't want them to have the wrong memory of the content. I think in your general life, it's just something that happens because you're not able, you'll never be able to remember everything. So I think that's just normal. But yeah, there is a big concern with misconceptions in schools. So sometimes kids come to school with the thought that this is how something happens when it's not. And then it's really hard for the teacher to convince almost the kids that that's not how it happens, really. Very common one that there's nothing here in between us. Okay. When there is a lot of atoms yeah air and molecules but then because you don't see them and you know that's just a normal misconception that people will think but there's nothing here just me and you and then there's nothing between us but then there is so you have to do a lot of work in schools to make sure that you suppress almost that misconception and then you get the new one and you remember that the new one's the right one mm. and not the, the old one they already had but i guess uh doing this nice techniques like um, creating the connections and really thinking about things and answering questions there is a good way to get the right conception to stay instead of the misconception one are there certain exercises that you can do that help sustain your ability to or your, your cognitive function of your brain yeah I, I mean some people say crossword some people have created apps like academics have created apps that are specific for that. Mm. Like they say, this type of game will help, this type of game will help. I think it's mostly just anything that you can do to actively think, just really elaborating, which is the same thing that I tell the students to do really when preparing for exams, just really trying to create connections between one thing and another thing and linking that to personal experiences and uh, really being active in your learning instead of just trying to passively absorb things from the world. That's some good advice. A lot of people are in jobs that they learned how to do 10 years ago and it hasn't really changed very much and they're still doing the same job over and over again. I feel like in that state you would lose the ability to learn mm. a little bit. But if, you, if those same people had many activities outside of work that they were constantly learning, like they were maybe yeah. learning how to go downhill mountain biking really well or learning how to do different mathematical problems that they've never tried before, then they would be able to retain that ability much more. Is that? Yeah, I think it's uh, what we talked about desirable difficulties before. If you're doing the exact same thing that you already know how to, yeah. then you're not learning anything new because that's all already in your long-term memory and you don't have to process any new information you don't have to elaborate it's all already there mm. there's no difficulty to overcome so there's no learning anymore so yeah, if you're just trying to get new things done uh, in a way that you can get them done uh, so if they're too difficult and you're not able to overcome those difficulties maybe you won't learn them and so it has to have difficulties and you have to be able to overcome them that's the ideal situation for learning yeah sorry i think you're right yeah. when we're making uh, when we're thinking back to maybe our childhood we can remember some events that happened yeah. i personally find that all of the events i can think of have quite a quite a strong emotional attachment whether it be pain or when I broke my arm or when a family member died or something like that. Mm -hmm. Although they're negative, aren't they? Yeah, about but that, that. that's fine. They're still but, better than neutral ones. Mm. So what's the reason that people can't remember like the mundane things that they used to do every day? Yeah, the, those memory trace, traces, they're just stronger in your brain when you have this modulation with memory, basically. So against the monkey example evolutionarily speaking it's not really relevant for you to remember mundane things because they're not going to influence your survival and reproduction rates so you remember the ones that do it's a evolutionary explanation for that yeah so if you move back into the schools there's many 
different ways of learning. So there's the the typical what you're told, read this and you'll somehow acquire that information, which I don't think necessarily works that well. Or a teacher standing up in front of the class and speaking, which again might not be suited to everybody. One of my friends, I remember this really vividly because it resonated with me, he told me that he felt when he was at school like he was a fish that was told to climb a tree. I don't know if you've heard that analogy yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. So if there's a if there's a testing method that doesn't suit your abilities, you're maybe told that you're not as good at learning or at uh, acquiring um, skills that you may need in your life as somebody else who might be a monkey and yeah, yeah. is told to yeah. climb the tree. So do you think with the techniques that you learn through Seneca Learn that you can teach anybody to be able to climb the tree or are there different techniques for different people yeah so there are a lot of things on that question so, that, yeah, uh, yeah unpack it how you good. want <laughs> uh, so i think we should start i don't know if you've heard of learning styles a little bit but yeah so that's the mean. idea that some people prefer to learn visually some people prefer to learn auditorily some people prefer to learn like doing things and then teachers should adapt their teaching to their preferences. That's not supported by evidence, so that's widely believed. So there is a book called Understanding How We Learn by the learning scientists. Uh, I think it was published this year, and they have a table with like the most common myths that people still believe. And that's like on the top part of the table. I was so, told that so many times at school. Yeah to find out which learning style I had and yeah. to try and learn in that way and revise in that way. Yeah, so that's not a thing. So what happens is that when you do like a proper controlled research, what they do is you have students, you give them a survey, what's your preferred learning style? And they go, oh, these are the visual ones, these are the kinetic ones, these are the other ones. And then you get them to learn things using that style or using a different one. And then when they measure the performance, there is no difference. So using your preferred style does not improve your performance. That's what research says. So teachers adapting their whole classroom to teach that one guy as visual learner, that one kid as an auditory learner, that it's just counterproductive because right. you're not helping them and you're just increasing a workload basically because you have to adapt to all these people and you're not really helping them. So that's just one thing from your question that I think it's... It's good to always mention because, like I said, people still follow that and mm. that's just not supported by evidence at all. The other thing with the, the thing with the fish and the monkey, I've seen that in a cartoon, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I think there is another dangerous thing. Yes, so but the way I see people, well, organisms in general, okay. is that you have, you think about a graph, you have your abilities... Like you can go, let's say, playing football, you can go from really, really bad to a genius in playing football, like Lionel Messi. And then you can go from really, really bad, which it's probably me. <laughs> and uh, part of that range will be defined by your genes, your biology. But then how much you practice, how much you train, how much you learn can move you yeah, within sure. that. But only to a certain point, I'd say. So if you are a fish you're never going to be able to climb a tree yeah. because you just not your body, your biology is not going to get you there. No matter how much you practice, you're just not going to. Kids or people will have different dispositions and some people will be very well suited for academic lifestyle and some people will be more suited for other types of lifestyle or careers. And that's absolutely fine. You can't expect everybody to want to do PhDs and you can't expect everybody to want to be a football player and then uh, yeah I agree that it's important to give everybody opportunities to develop what they want to develop and their skills and their knowledge as well but I think it's also important to know that if you want them to do well in school like in the classic sense of school then there are ways that are more proven to work than other ways so if you want to 
teach them English and maths. Then research usually points to direct instruction and retrieval practice, so teachers explaining things in front of the classroom and then giving them homework and practice for them to create the connections and retrieve that information from their minds. Uh, but you can also have the other types of activity, which are great to develop other types of skills. You just can't expect those activities to replace the traditional ones when it comes to learning the core subjects. So I think uh, you asked if teachers should teach them in different ways so you yeah. can help fish climb trees. I don't know if you can. I think you can help your fish <laughs> get to as close to their maximum ability as possible. But there is no point in expecting that everybody will be able to climb a tree. But they may be good at doing something else. Yeah. When, when my friend was telling me about that, he was using school as an example of something that he was ne not necessarily that... Uh, he, he didn't really enjoy it that much. And he felt like if he'd have had a different experience, maybe a more physical one or like a uh, school that took you out into the countryside all the time and you learnt about the different plants and animals that there were and you learn in a more, I suppose, in a different environment, then he would have excelled yeah. there. Yeah, he would have learned more about those skills. Which would have suited him more, yeah. I think. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> I always skipped my PE classes in yeah. school because I, I'm not, I don't, I just don't enjoy sports or any physical activity, really. <laughs> So, and some kids would skip their maths class because they didn't like maths and I liked it and I liked science, but I didn't like the sports yeah. or any of the drama. Uh, but I think what I want to say is that if you want your kids well, to do well in English, then taking them to another environment may help them in some way, but doesn't necessarily help them with the English ability because there are these nice ways of teaching English and if you just go very much away from that there will be other skills that will be developed and that will be fine if that person likes that and they're not just not interested in English that's fine but that doesn't mean I think they're gonna improve in everything yeah I understand yeah. that yeah, yeah. it's difficult fine. isn't it because yeah. you don't know what the person will want to be good at once yeah. they're 25 or later in life I personally yeah. was did not enjoy English at all at school. Um, I didn't get on with it. I found it quite difficult. But I did like maths and science. And I kind of knew quite early on that I was never going to be a writer. I was never going to be, yeah. you know, a, a poet. Yeah. That that didn't really matter to me because I had other uh, sort of other avenues to yeah. to explore. I, I think that's fine. Yeah. Not everybody will be good at everything. Some people will be good at some things and some people will be good at other things. I think that's all right. Of course. Okay, so I was interested in what we can do to improve our memory and our learning capabilities. If we think about our sleep patterns or our food or at the exercise that we do, are any of these proven to improve our ability to learn? Yeah, so sleep's definitely a big one. So memory is always in these three stages. You have to encode information. So basically take that from the word, put that in your head. You have to process that. Then you have to consolidate, which is the transfer from your working memory to your long-term memory. And then you are able to retrieve that back into the word. And sleep plays a big part in the consolidation stage. So if you don't have a good night's sleep, you won't be consolidating your knowledge well enough. So, yeah, definitely having a good night's sleep and a nice sleep pattern helps. I'd say in terms of exercise, just being healthy because, you know, we think about the mind as some different thing, you know, special. But in the end, you need your brain and your brain is part of your body. And if your body is not healthy, then your brain is not gonna be healthy either that's how i see it i see you know it's just another organ in your body yeah so you have to take care of it like you do take care of your guts really. so that's i suppose why even though you don't really like sport and physical activity you still go to the gym i do go to the gym the same reason why i eat vegetables and i take medicine when i'm sick it's just a way to keep my body working and that goes for your brain 
if you are very tired, if you don't have energy because you're not sleeping well, because you're not eating well, or because you're not doing any physical activities, you're just sedentary, then there won't be enough energy for your brain, basically. So then it won't learn as well because it won't have the energy, basically, that you need to keep your organs working. Before we started recording, you were telling me that you go into schools quite a lot to yeah. give talks. What kind of information do you give them? What kind of advice do you give the pupils? Yeah, so I, I tell them to get a timetable, like a calendar, and try to plan the revision ahead. Then I know that it takes some time and it's kind of tiring to do that, but it will be worth it. It will work better for the brains if they do that instead of just going desperate. 10 hours a day in the last week before the exams. Mm. So I try to tell them to do that. I have some examples of all the people that have done very nice calendars with using this spacing and interleaving. And I tell them to try to mix words with visual elements as well. So that also helps. If you use timelines, mind maps, like diagrams, things like that, that can make it easier for you to process that information. Those sorts of things have and been proven through studies to work. Yeah, yeah. So if you can really connect words with images, so they have to make sense combined together, they can't just be repetitive one another, they have to kind of combine together, mm. then that helps you to understand things and helps you to remember. Uh, flashcards, which are a common one, but it's a good one, mm. because they work like questions and answers. So you see the question, then you think about the answer, you're retrieving that information, and then you flip, and then you see if that is correct or not. And also creating your own questions, and then exchanging that with your colleagues. So if you write five questions about a topic, and then your friend writes five questions, then you all have ten questions to answer. It should be fun as well. <laughs> Yeah, is, is that key then? Is it is making it fun, making a revision more fun, vital? Well, you need to be motivated. You need to be engaged in a way that you're really thinking about that. That's what I'm saying, engaging for, that you're really thinking about that. If you're just doing something that you find very boring, then your mind is elsewhere and you're thinking about, oh, what am I going to have for dinner tonight or something like that. So then you're not really learning mm. the way you should you yeah. remember what you're having for dinner but yeah. not the so if you really are engaged in a way that you are really focused and motivated to learn that then your brain your memory is more you have more attention to that i said to one of my friends a few weeks ago i constantly seem to have this conversation i feel like learning is something that we all need to do if you don't do it you feel like you're missing out you've got something missing in your life but I've been thinking recently that maybe teaching is also a bit of an extension to that, that once you have acquired that knowledge, it feels like you need to give it back. It's just um, something that's inbuilt in us that we need to do. Have you felt like that as well, that you want to give back? I suppose that's why you're in this job. Yeah, that's part of it. I like the idea of helping people feel good about that. And I've talked, so I told you that we interview some teachers as well. Mm. And some of them say, I went into teaching because I wanted to give it back. And I wanted to explain things to people and I wanted to improve their knowledge and broaden their horizons or whatever. And I think that's great. I don't think everybody... I mean, I just remembering I was at the gym the other day and this guy came to talk to me and was like, so what do you do? And I said, I work for this social enterprise that provides free resources for kids and he's like oh that's very nice and i said what do you do and he said i'm an investment banker i just basically buy companies and sell them for more money <laughs> and I said, yeah that's great uh but he was happy <laughs> he was like i actually like it very much i'm very happy doing that and i'm sure he teaches other people in his circle how to do that well when that's i said fine. teaching i didn't necessarily mean in a in a classroom, oh, right. I think you can teach in in a wide yeah. range of scenarios. I think if that guy had a a child and taught him how to tie the shoelaces, then the sense of achievement, um, or you know, if you teach someone how to kick a ball in the right direction, or anything. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say so. Yeah. And also because you're learning more about that, so when you're able to explain something to somebody and they really learn it, then mm. you're making that stronger in your head as well. And there is the emotion side that come with that. It just makes you happy that you did something nice for somebody else. 
yeah so yeah in that sense yeah i agree i think everybody will like to contribute to somebody else in helping them do something that they already know um what research are you interested in looking at now are you still involved in any uh yeah so uh right now the idea is to work with some schools to do some research with them basically to see how different techniques using the platform improve learning improve performance at least so we're going to be working with some schools so there are already some of them working using the platform in different days of the week so some kids are getting homework via the platform once a week and some kids are getting smaller homework shorter okay. homework but spread out during the week so you're gonna see if it makes any difference for the learning if they're using it once a week or five days a week but less each time there's another research that is doing relating Seneca to self-efficacy or self-confidence because we know that it can improve performance but that school was more interested in how in whether it improves other measurements as well so sure. how confident the kid is about that question how much they think they can answer a problem because that is important as well so yeah we're just gonna be working more with that in the new year just trying to get schools and us together to really evaluate how different techniques work mm. i think it's finland that don't give homework to their children i don't know if you know anything about this i haven't read what do they do instead I, well they say that homework makes no difference in how well people mm. retain the knowledge do you what do you think to that i'd say it really depends on the homework if you're giving them things that do not help them to actively bring things to mind or create connections between pieces of information then maybe it doesn't if your homework is not well planned it's not something that students really have to think hard and put the effort into to solving then maybe that doesn't help but I think, I'm going to read there, I don't haven't read that much about that, but I, say, I think that it helps because it's just an extra way for you to consolidate, to store that memory and to create connections and really work yeah. through that content. Maybe as long as it's but, tailored yeah, properly. Yeah. It does seem a waste of time if it's ineffective. Yeah. Are there other bits of research that you like to keep up to date with that's happening in this area? Yeah, so I read a lot of teacher blogs, really. Most research, I said, happens um, in the lab. Mm. You know, you have these very controlled situations where people just go there and they are in this small room with no windows, no distractions, no anything, just you and your task. And you know that you're going to be there to do that task and you're going to get money, depending on the country, to do that task. So it's so, not like real life. Yeah, so it's good. It has to be like that because you need to control everything else to know what is your factor, really. But I like to read as well things that are done in schools, in like a real-life situation. So you may not have this very strong explanation. So you won't be able to say for sure this caused that because there will be a hundred other things happening at the same time. Some people, they are trying to apply different techniques in their classroom and then trying to measure the effects. And I suppose if you read a few different ones, you'll get different approaches to problems, won't you? Are there any that you want to tell people about that are good? Uh, on blogs? Yeah. So, yeah, so there is one person in the US. He's called, uh, his name is Blake Harvard. And uh, the blog is called The Effort Educator, Effortful Educator. And also because he knows about this thing about desirable difficulties and that you need to put effort. I think he's my favorite blog because he has really, really good ideas. But there are people here in England too. So there's Adam Boxer in London, in North London. He's a really cool blog. Uh, Nikki Kaiser from Norwich. She works a lot with misconceptions. So if you're interested in how to help your students to learn the right way and then not keep focusing on the misconceptions she has a lot of stuff about that we write blog posts as well but more like uh theory based because we are not in the classroom at the moment but we write some for seneca sure as well where do you see uh, artificial intelligence coming into this conversation um 
I think it can be a good help. Well, really depends on how you're defining artificial intelligence. <laughs> okay. uh, but like just uh, smart algorithms, that's how we call yeah. our stuff. Uh, I think it can be a good help because I always have this talk with the um, teachers. So sometimes they say, oh, I have this revision guide, but there's a mistake on the guide. And then my students are learning and then I realize, oh, but that's wrong. And then but they already learned and now it's a misconception and they have that and that's wrong. And one good thing about online learning is that you can just fix it very quickly. If you have a printed book with a mistake, you have to wait like two years to get a new book. If you have an online platform, we have the team here and they just fix it the next week and it's all good. And also with the smart algorithm, you can adapt uh, the questions to the student's progress. So you have this individual adaptability. So if your one kid is doing really bad in one topic, but doing really well in another topic, probably different from another kid who's the other way around, like you said. So you were doing bad in English, but well in something else. And I was just failing PE entirely. <laughs> uh, but so with the adaptive algorithm, you can give different questions and different homework to these kids. They are adapted to their progress in each topic. So I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, that would be a great improvement. Have, yeah. So we, we do that in a way with Seneca already. Uh, but I've I've seen other websites as well. Uh, well, one of them that has not been launched yet. It will be only for maths. And it really fixes each line of the problem. It's called Blue Tick. I saw a presentation from the guy. It's not open yet, but it will be. And basically every line of the problem of the equation that the child is answering you get a response and that response is kind of AI in a way because it reads what the kid typed and then it gives you a different feedback depending on what you type. So that helps. I don't think it will ever replace real teaching, like human teaching. I don't think, you know, we see these movies with robots yeah. as teachers. I don't think we're going to get there. But I think it can be a big help in this helping to consolidate knowledge and helping kids to just practice more and also more like socially speaking it can help to reach areas that they wouldn't so if you work if you live in an area where your school is quite small and they don't have enough teachers then if you have a website like that that you can do on your phone most people at least in, here in the uk most people have a smartphone and so you can just do that on your phone. So if you don't have all the resources in your school, you can get some education still with the online learning and the artificial intelligence. So I think that helps as yeah. well. Can anyone sign up to Seneca? Yes. So I could yes. sign up and do a yes. learn all the GCSE biology yes. if I want to? Yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you can. Also, yesterday we launched a cognitive science course as well for teachers or you can do them you don't have to be a teacher so it's quite nice and uh, we talk about cognitive low theory working memory all the good strategies that i mentioned before desirable difficulties a lot of the things that i talk to you now but more and you can just take their course and uh, so that's specifically about. aimed at teachers to help them it's teach aimed at teachers but really i think it's interesting to yeah anyone anybody. Understand that yeah learning. yeah so that's yeah. great so if you just go on the website, you can find that. Is there anything else that you want to, to bring to the table that you want to say to everybody? Just because we're here, I should say, if you have a child or if you know a child who's taking their GCSEs or A-levels, then have a look at Seneca. Because like I said, it's free and it's all based on the things that we talked about here, which is great. If you are a teacher, get in touch with me because we can come to your school and give assemblies and cpg training on cognitive science and how do people get in touch uh, yeah you can email me at flavia at seneca.io there's also a twitter which is flavia bellum phd uh, you can just get in touch with us uh, yeah but i think that's it thanks for talking to me i think research is really cool and there are a lot of things that you learn i like science i love research and if you can apply that research to the real world and end up helping students, 
to get better in school. That's really all we want, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's brilliant. You mentioned applying it in, in the schools. How do you take the research and apply it? I think he relies a lot on teachers themselves and uh, their superiors, their senior leadership team to have the opportunity to try new things. So if they read that some technique works, then they need to have the opportunity to try that and then see if it really does with their classroom. Uh, so I know some schools, they will have a very strict policy in how teachers should be teaching, but some schools are more open and they are more willing to let teachers experiment things that have been shown to work somewhere else. And then if it doesn't work, then don't work, then you can try something else. But the school is open to these experiences, so I think it really depends on schools. But if you can get an external speaker, somebody to collaborate with, then that's my favorite part when I go to school because I can give them all this theory about you know the brain and stuff. But I really like when they come and tell me what's happening in the classroom because they will have the experience yeah. that I don't have at the moment. I used to. I was a teacher for a while, uh, but I don't have anymore. And like I said before, it's important for researchers to have the controlled experiments. Uh, and it's important for schools to try them in real life. So if you can always collaborate and one help the other one and the other one help the other one, I think that's the best way. So, yeah, it's got to be a two-way street so yeah. that everyone understands each other's perspectives yeah. to better improve for everyone. Yes. All right, shall we finish it there? Yeah, thank, thank you very you. much. Yeah, it was really fun. Okay. I enjoyed this. Yes, thanks, me too. Well, who'd have thought it? Relating positive emotions to things helps us to remember them better than relating negative emotions to it. I'm definitely taking a few key points from that to help me with my own learning. So like she said, if anyone wants to get in touch with her, especially you teachers, you can find her on Twitter at Flavia Bellum, PhD. Or you can get in touch with Seneca at SenecaLearn. Alternatively, if you want to email her, Flavia at Seneca.io. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I hope you've got some takeaways as well. If you want to subscribe, head over to iTunes, click that subscribe button, follow me on Twitter, get in touch. All feedback is greatly appreciated. And as always, big thank you to Laura James for this beautiful music that you're listening to. Just to give you a little heads up on what's around the corner for Fascinate Pod, over the next couple of episodes, I'll be meeting with the CEO of Drug Science, and we'll have a very interesting talk on something that I've been looking quite a bit into recently, universal basic income. So stay tuned for that one. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. That was Dr. Flavia Bellum. Bye-bye.